You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. I am Hody Jones. I'm Lou. And I'm Brian. And this is Enemy of My Enemy. Today, we got a nice and spicy one for you here. As, as usual, we've got a bunch of honkies here to talk about white privilege. Um, and so, of course, uh, one side might not be represented as well as the others. Uh, but white, white privilege is a subject that goes back uh, a, a ways. A lot of people are just waking up to it, uh, believing in it is something that can get you labeled as woke somewhat quickly. Um, but it is uh, worth talking about nonetheless, because there is evidence on both sides to talk uh, to both admit or dismiss the concept of white privilege in general. And it'll be interesting to see where all three of us fall on this one, because I feel like this is one that isn't necessarily a left, right and center issue. Kind of everybody has a has a different take on it, especially based on personal experience. Um, so the reason we wanted to talk about this, of course, it is somewhat of a current event um, because you've got Tim Tebow coming back to the NFL, it looks like he is going to join the Jacksonville Jaguars. They're talking about a one-year schol- uh, not scholarship, one-year contract right now um, with his old coach, Urban Meyer. Of course, they just got their uh, new quarterback, Trevor Lawrence, was the first pick of the NFL draft this year. And so they're just looking to get the gang back together there. Of course, the gang happens to be very white. And so there is a lot of consideration that there are people who are maybe more worthy of jobs in the NFL that are unable to get those jobs in the NFL uh, because of they are, they are not white and they don't enjoy that relationship. Um, Tim Tebow is not involved in a tryout. In fact, the Jacksonville Jaguars aren't looking to try out anybody uh, that didn't make the roster this year. A lot of times teams have an open, open tryout for teams that didn't quite make the cut this year, the Jacksonville Jaguars. It's unclear if it's due to COVID or something else, but they aren't holding that event. So either you get signed or you don't, and it's all based on personal relationships or prior ability on the field. Um, There's no, Hey, come show up. And if we like your work ethic, maybe we'll have you on the team Um, this year, at least anyway, there's none of that. Um, Of course, Colin Kaepernick is not in the NFL. He hasn't played in some time. Uh, He was a quarterback. He made it to the Super Bowl once for the San Francisco 49ers. He is of course, very famous for starting the trend of taking a knee during the national anthem. Uh, And, he is no longer in the NFL, despite many considering him to be a superior talent over Tim Tebow, Tebow who by far had the mo- more lackluster career numbers between the two of them side by side. Um, also in recent events, the Golden Globes were dropped. Um, perhaps this is a strike against white privilege uh, by NBC. Tom Cruise has returning his awards that he previously won. Um, specifically, this is due to the lack of diversity within the Golden Globes, both their counsel that gives out the awards and um, just the event itself, not, not awarding enough um, diverse uh, recipients. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and start with Lou on this one. Lou, take as much time as you want and tell us how you feel about the subject of white privilege. Okay. Um, so I'll start with Tebow and Kaepernick, right? I'm not a big sports ball follower. Like I enjoy the game. I don't have a team. Oh, um, what I I don't, I don't know. Cleveland. I I don't know games. I don't, or sports teams. 
<laughs> oh, no. Hey, I live close to there. That's I could be a fan. Um, but I have kind of been following the Tebow thing, and as far as um, him and, and Urban Meyer, like that is just straight nepotism, right? Because even like Urban Meyer's, like his whole family, they have called Tebow like a son to them, and he's part of the family and things like that. And they've they've had that relationship for years and years and years, and they pulled him out of retirement because it's a, it's more about the brand, his name. I think than anything, right? I don't. I mean, Tebow's okay, and eh, it whatever. I don't know. I don't know his stats. Maybe he's great, but he's well known. Like someone like me, I'm. I don't follow football, but I know who Tim Tebow is. I know who Colin Kaepernick is. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously. <laughs> so I think in that case, a lot of it is nepotism and that connection that they have. Specifically, is that a white privilege issue? Maybe. I do I do think that some of that plays in there. Um, but where the white privilege comes in, as you mentioned, how I see it, is that we do have all these free agents or, or people who have not gotten picked up, right? Colin Kaepernick being sort of a, what comes to top of mind on this topic. Uh, people, he's kind of been shunned because... You know, people were up in arms about kneeling during the national anthem and things like that. And that, I think, is really interesting because if I remember correctly, and I could have my facts somewhat wrong here. Again, I don't I don't really follow a lot of sports. But you'll have uh, Tebow kneeling on the field in prayer like that's his thing. And nobody nobody was up in arms about it. And then you have Kaepernick kneeling on the field during the national anthem to protest police brutality against people of color and to bring attention to this. And of course, there's this really sort of odd balance because if you look at the statistics, the numbers in the NFL, like how many players are people of color versus white? And so a lot of the top earners, now you still have a lot of white top earners as well, but you have a lot of black players that are top earners, but your top spenders in the NFL are white people. So this is really interesting. It's it's a really interesting dynamic. So because your top spenders, the people who are putting dollars in the pockets of your NFL bigwigs, right, are mostly white people who are watching mostly people of color on the field. So how do you how do you balance that, right? And I don't think the answer is to tell them to shut up or don't do what you're doing, especially in a, in a sense of a, a peaceful protest. And I'm kind of going to go on a rabbit trail here <laughs> for, as far as Kaepernick goes. I, I think what he did was so classy and how he handled himself was very like exactly what I would have expected someone to do. It was a classy way to make a statement. And I know that a lot of people were up in arms because it's disrespectful to our troops. It's disrespectful to our flag. It's disrespectful to our anthem and this, that, and the other. And I kind of want to go, okay, let's take this one step further and talk about Francis Scott Key. Or, yeah. So he was a racist and a slave owner and all of this. And there's a whole other verse in the national anthem that talks about slaves. So 
maybe <laughs> we should just have a whole new anthem, right? Like, even though in in context, like he was protesting police brutality, right? That was what he wanted to bring attention to. Um, when people get mad because a black man is disrespecting the national anthem, that national anthem and the man who wrote it disrespected people of color all the time. So I just have a, a, a quote here. Um, uh, Francis Scott Key said, um, in regards to Africans in America, a dis they are a distinct and inferior race of people, which all experience proves to be the greatest evil that afflicts a community. That is a quote from the man who wrote our national anthem. So I don't really care what Kaepernick was protesting in that moment. We should all think about the national anthem. <laughs> like maybe we need to go back to the drawing board on that one. Um, so that's kind of where I stand on that one. I ha I have no qualms with protesting in such a, a peaceful way. You've had dozens upon dozens of military members who wrote a letter that they all, a statement that they all signed supporting his right to protest that way. Um, and I find it really, really, really sad that, you know, all these pro-American football fans were so up in arms about it, but they won't listen to what it was really about, or they'll be offended on behalf of military members, but they won't listen to the military members who say, we support this, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a white privilege thing there because at the same, you know, on the other side of the coin, Tebow kneeling in prayer, right? Freedom of religion, freedom to practice his religion, what have you. Um, but nobody got mad because, you know, oh, well, that's not inclusive of non-religious people or Jews or Muslims or Hindu, any other religion. It, like, everyone's just like, oh, that's nice. Like, that's white privilege to me. Um, not that I think anybody should get mad that he kneeled and prayed. But I don't know. There's There's definitely some major issues with privilege in our in our society, obviously. And, and we're really seeing that play out in the NFL right now, pulling Tebow out of retirement when you've got perfectly capable and better athletes ready and willing to come out and play and call Tebow in anyway. So <sighs> I'm gonna hand it off to Brian. <laughs> Lots to unpack here. Okay. Right? Number one, um, relationships are a big part of the NFL, just like they are in any kind of business like that. Urban Meyer was one of the top recruited pro coaches uh, coming out of college football. Um, we can talk about the reasons why he left Ohio State. We can talk about his success at, at Florida and everything else. Um, but the NFL is relationship-driven. Um, getting Tebow out of uh, kind of retirement playing, he was still playing baseball. Um, and where he's going to play, apparently, is tight end. We'll see how he does. Um, the NFL, 
does a lot, doesn't do a lot of open tryouts. You tend to get guys like me that show up who haven't touched a football, any sort of, you know, basically it's a lot of wasted time. So a lot of times there's free agent signings like you were just talking about. Um, I'm very close to this because one of my favorite players, Rory Robertson Harris uh, on the bears was just signed by the Jacksonville Jaguars during free agency for a guaranteed $24 million. And when you look at the roster that the Jacksonville Jaguars signed just uh, during, just over the, over this 2021 uh, pre, you know, uh, free agent market season, uh, I think 80% players are black. So, you know, there's also a lot of free agent signings that happen after the draft. Um, and it's a lot of people that just, you know, hey, we thought he was good. We'll bring him in on a, on a contract and see how he plays. Um, a lot of these one-year contracts are not guaranteed. I don't know the details about Tim Tebow's contract, but usually for a player like that, you basically get paid per game that you play. So if you're sitting on the practice squad, which I don't even think Tebow would qualify for the practice squad anymore because he's got too many games played, um, he'll just sit there um, and earn, like, you know, what would be considered a pittance compared to what the NFL players are earning. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it, and this is the unpopular, this is the unpopular thing, Colin Kaepernick was really good in Jim Harbaugh's system. Jim Harbaugh was the coach of the 49ers went over to Michigan. And I unfortunately have known Jim Harbaugh, not personally, but sports-wise, for pretty close to uh, three decades. He was a Bears quarterback, uh, then became Colts quarterback, and then became moved up the coaching tree. Um, Jim Harbaugh is nuts. Um, but he's very good at football. Uh, at least he was with the 49ers. His team is pretty – most NFL teams will tell you it's a little predictable. So I went to uh, Michigan. Um, Kaepernick outside of Jim Harbaugh's scheme was terrible. Uh, his numbers uh, were okay, but he ended up doing a lot of what I'll call silly plays that ended up getting him benched. And it wasn't the kneeling. It wasn't that. It was just that he had poor play. And he would, And when he played Bears, I think he threw five interceptions in a game. If you throw five interceptions in a game, uh, three or five interceptions in a game, you're going to get benched. So just it, it happens. You guys, Mr. Trubisky, who used to be on the Bears, who's on the Bills now, he got benched right after that. So there, there's a lot to unpack there about white privilege and things like that. Is there privilege in the NFL? Yes. Is there privilege in society? Absolutely. Um, but you can wrap privilege up into a number of different balls. Uh, you can wrap it up in white privilege. You can wrap it up in having two parents that love you privilege. You can wrap it up in, I was lucky enough to go to a really good school. I was lucky enough to have a really good teacher. I had people that challenged me. Um, you can also wrap up the, my parents got divorced. They were both meth addicts. They were both, you know, um, they, they didn't really pay attention to me. They had their own emotional problems. So it's very easy to, to box things into little easy boxes to sit there and say, well, this is because of white privilege. This is because of wealth privilege. This is because of education privilege and things like that. They're a lot more nuanced. In society, we like to be a little more nuanced in things. I don't have a problem with the idea of white privilege overall, but I think that it's, it's used 
in such a way sometimes that it, it, it really discourages how, um, how we see people and it, it categorizes them very easily. Uh, just as someone wouldn't want to be categorized because of, you know, well, you're, you know, you, you can't do this job because of X, Y, Z physical trait. We wouldn't want to do that. We're doing that. That doesn't mean you don't recognize that I was very fortunate to have a very loving mom who is a single mom raised me to the person I am. Um, doesn't mean that I, I have some sort of ill-gotten wealth because of the color of my skin. I like to think it's because I worked my tail off for the past 30 years in my job. So, you know, I, I've seen it go several different ways. And I hate to see people boxed in like that because if you're telling somebody that you you are only getting that because of this, discounts any that you know anything about their life, what they've struggled through. How do you go to a kid who was who aged out of the foster system, no parents, nobody there to support him, and how do you look at them and say, You you have white privilege? I think they'd gladly trade that in for two parents who gave a crap about them. I think they trade it in a heartbeat. And if someone wants to sit there and tell me that, well, that person's more lucky because of color of their skin, I, I'd like you to actually have a conversation with these kids because I've lived with them. I've seen them grow up, and it tears my heart out when I see people sit there and crap all over them because of the color of their skin. Either way, no matter what. So sorry, I get a little bit uh, uh, maybe uppity privileged on, on that discussion when I see kids that honestly – have been dealt a, a giant turd sandwich and are told, well, you should just be thankful. Yeah. I, um, I have an issue with the term privilege. So if I'm, if I'm being a literalist, I really don't, I, I, I flat out kind of reject the concept of, of white privilege. And that's only if I'm being very literal. So I'll, I'll start with one. Of course, this is my job as the center position to start one side and go to the other. Um, privilege is a special right, advantage, or immunity granted or available only to a particular person or group. So when we talk about, if we use the term white privilege, and we insist on calling it white privilege, the, the issue there is you're saying you have a special right that you shouldn't have because nobody should have a special right over anybody else. And so the issue I have is when people point to examples of white privilege, like look at this white person not get killed in this police interaction, or look at this white person, you know, not being judged by the color of their skin or, or get, you know, get these certain, um, look at all these good things happening. My issue isn't that I don't want good things happening to white people either. I want good things happening to everybody. So for me, White privilege isn't isn't something like if anything, privilege is something that everybody should have. Of course, then it's no longer privilege anymore because it's no longer a special right. And so for me, it's not I don't love the term white privilege um, to back up what Brian said. Colin Kaepernick was playing very poorly. He, to put it in perspective, he got outplayed by Blake Bortles. That's who ended up passing him up, who is barely in the NFL himself. Um, so when you get outplayed by somebody who is barely in the NFL themselves, yeah, things things aren't looking so good for you. He had one. Of course, I play fantasy football, right? Uh, yet another white person thing that I do. But he was um, I think there's one game because, you know, one of my one of the owners drafted him and he, he got like like three completions, 11 incompletions, completions, like three interceptions and 11 yards. And I think that was one of his final games. And you're just like, oh my, that is a, 
that's a stat line that even makes even Tim Tebow look like he did a fantastic job playing quarterback. And this is kind of the conversation we're having today. And that it's unfortunate. So. <laughs> was that the one? All right. Well, oh, yeah, uh, Just right, ab- absolutely horrendous. Um, there's that, I think kind of that famous clip where he's up and there's somebody who's the defense has forgotten to cover on his left side. And the guy is like, Hey, like right here, right here, buddy. Right, right here. Like pass me the ball. And Kaepernick just like, I forget like hands off or runs or something, but just like completely drops it and, and isn't able to see it. Colin Kaepernick was a phenomenal talent. And I can actually kind of explain what happened to Colin Kaepernick through like a sports analogy or not, not sports analogy, sports analysis. He, was very much a he he never could master the touch pass and so unfortunately defenders learned that you can play he he was one of the best hard throwers in the NFL the guy threw darts i mean if you watch it and it's funny people are kind of famous for his making famous for his legs and his running ability it was those darts that he threw were just incredible um and, and so I loved I loved watching him play. Unfortunately, when the defense figured him out, they just said, hey, listen, you don't have to play behind your man on defense. You just play in between the ball and the receiver, and he can't throw over their heads because he tries to always throw through. And, you know, it's funny because, uh, you know, being a Denver fan, we had Peyton Manning for a little bit, who was famous for old, the noodle arm. He could only throw over people. And ultimately, that's kind of a more important tool set to happen in the quarterback position. Um, I wish Ka- Kaepernick had developed it. Um, and maybe, maybe he has, you know, one of the troubles is he did host that tryout. He had a lot of drama regarding the tryouts. Part of, part of the Colin Kaepernick issue is there was a lot of drama. Here's the thing. Why is Colin Kaepernick out in the NFL? It, it needs to start with Colin Kaepernick. And I'm not only talking about his poor play. Um, he opted out of the last year of his contract. He actually was going to sign with um, the Denver Broncos and rejected us because we didn't offer enough money. Um, so we actually offered him a position to play and he turned it down. The Baltimore Ravens offered him a position to play. And like a couple of days before, like his, his charter meeting or whatever, his girlfriend tweeted and his girlfriend tweeted that it was, um, Ray Lewis who had gotten him like the interview and was like, yeah, we need Colin Kaepernick back, back in the NFL, like called him an uncle Tom called Ray Lewis and uncle Tom. I was like, man, you just had somebody like go to bat for you. Like what? And you just like, look at this guy being yes, sir. No, sir. And I'm like, that guy just took his neck out for you. Like nobody wants to be associated with that kind of drama. Now, a lot of that could be a lot of the Kaepernick issue could, uh, and I'm making uh, an inference here and maybe I shouldn't, but he, I I think for me, it strikes me as very mental. And maybe a lot of that happened because of the focus on everything else that he lost his focus on football. I I can't say for sure. He made some very bad decisions on and off the field as far as playing football goes. Now that's about the extent that I want to extend the white privilege doesn't exist, or I guess the good parts of that side, as far as the other side goes, it's a nonviolent protest. We always say, don't protest like that. Don't protest like that. Don't protest like that. And so when you find one to protest that, yes, it's incredibly divisive. You knew it was incredibly divisive. I think there was, there was something like 180 like body camera bills, like going around the nation and all of them got dropped as soon as the kneeling started to happen. And here's the thing. That's not really Colin Kaepernick's fault because he was trying to bring attention to police brutality and these police, instead of looking at this and being like, see, this guy is exactly why we need body cameras. They went, Nope, because it hurts their pride. And so they dropped all of these bills. There was a whole ton of controversy. It's you have to know what you're doing. Now, the thing is, is it's your right to be divisive in America. 
And we here on the Broncos, another Broncos example, we won the Super Bowl with a middle linebacker who was also kneeling during the national anthem, Brandon Marshall, um, who ended up, I believe, joining the Chicago Bears <laughs> after he won the Super Bowl. Thank you, and I'm glad he's gone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we have no middle linebacker right now, so hopefully we can get somebody there back. But anyway, um, he he was one of those that was like, listen, here's the thing. Like people wanted to say, this is about the kneeling. This is about the kneeling. A lot of this was also about performance. And, and, and I understand that, but I think a lot of it could have been associated with a lot of undue pressure on a very young kid who made a lot of decisions that maybe I or you would have made in a similar type of situation and with that much pressure on them. And they shouldn't have had that much pressure on, on them. And, and so I, I do think that it's, it is odd that Tim Tebow, who posted, uh, I guess, maybe had more success, less success. He, Tim Tebow was maybe more steady at quarterback, which is a weird thing to say about Tim Tebow, who has usually had the signature of being bad for three and a half quarters and then winning the game in the last, half, you know, <laughs> seven minutes. But he had a, but he had a very more, like, at least it was some kind of consistency whereas, with Tim Tebow, whereas kind of Colin Kaepernick was like, all like Pro Bowl level great and then just fell off the map, you know? And so it's like, did Team Tebow still have something left in the barrel? Well, he got signed to the New York Jets. They didn't really use him. And so we kind of didn't see the last of Tim Tebow a little bit. That being said, I I agree with Lou's point that it is kind of like, it's weird that we have so many talented tight ends that are kind of proving themselves that can't find a job. And yet Tim Tebow finds a job. Now maybe he'll prove me and all the other analysts wrong and end up being like one of the greatest tight ends ever tight end is kind of one of those positions that has a lot of converts like if you used to be a wrestler used to be like a basketball player for some reason tight end is where the nfl sees you they're just like oh did you used to play a different sport for him right this was totally this is a totally new position for him. correct he was a quarterback yeah and now and now he's gonna be a tight end but but you can take offensive tackles wide receivers that have gained too much weight, mm-hmm. uh, linebackers who can catch a ball and put them in as tight end. So. Right. I mean, Kelvin Benjamin this year is apparently yeah. going to be tight end. I think that's Giants, something like that. Anyway, um, so yeah, you got a lot of that going on. Now, here's the thing about white privilege is while I do have a problem with the term white privilege, and while I do have issues with using Colin Kaepernick necessarily as an example, I find that a lot of people tend to use those exceptions as an excuse to do nothing or to dismiss the entire movement or to say, you know, there's no like black people aren't treated badly because I have this experience and nothing else can trump that experience or nothing else can trump this. The term white privilege is bad. And so therefore I'm going to do nothing because of the term white privilege. Right. You know, because because I don't like the term or because I don't like calling because Colin Kaepernick sucked at playing quarterback. So therefore, it's all about Colin Kaepernick sucking at playing quarterback and therefore race relations with police officers don't exist. That is a terrible way of looking at white privilege. And I find that if you do look at other people, here's something that I learned um, in my speech and debate days um, for a really good mentor of mine. And he said, do not dismiss someone's experience. You can always take their experience and talk about how maybe that's an outlier or make it fit within the common, you know, with, with whatever you feel that you know to be true um, and explain maybe why their experience happened, but we can't dismiss other people's experiences. And that's just something that kind of made me come around because I used to think race relation, like race was kind of an overblown problem in America. And the more I talked 
to people with those experiences and kept in mind, you're not allowed to dismiss somebody's experiences. Their experiences are real and it's okay for you to have your experiences too. I'm not even saying that your experience that like race not being as big an issue as it is needs to go away. You just need to reconcile that with other people who also have their experience as well. And ultimately, the more I looked at it, the more I decided, yeah, there there is something distinctly unique about being white and being black in America. That's not a shame. That's just something that kind of makes a lot of sense when you have a bunch of conquering inhabitants that ended up founding the nation and the white people are probably descended from them. And then you have a lot of people who were not brought here on the greatest of grounds, um, former slaves that were brought here against their will and treated like second class citizens and, or, I mean, treated like not citizens at all. And then barely granted second class citizens over the course of hundreds of years, that's going to affect how wealth is passed on. That affects how land is passed on. There are several times, even within, uh, I wouldn't say our lifetimes, but there are people alive today who were alive when the, I think it was the department of agriculture was splitting up land, uh, Mm -hmm. farmland and gave, more to white people than black people, like just by virtue of being white. And that was like the sixties or something like this is, this is one of those things that we, we actually have examples of saying that is a racist thing that happened somewhat recently. Of course, we're not too far distance from the sixties. These type of things tend to happen. You look at what you learn in school and how much of what I learned was through the perception of white people. And yeah, I, I, I occasionally learned about, you know, Crispus Attucks and Frederick Douglass and, um, you, you know, George Washington Carver and um, and, and some of those great Americans, um, well, great black activists. But like they were they were ultimately the outlier, the majority, like for every one of those classes, you probably had to mention, you know, George Washington or Paul Revere or, you know, I'm trying to think of like the non-presidents because a lot of people make an exception because they're like, well, that was a president. You had to know about them. But even if you think about that in terms of history, ultimately, isn't like, don't inventors do a lot more to change history than politicians? Don't, you know, don't some of these movements. I mean, you look at what Frederick Douglass did in his lifetime and the certain programs that got pushed in his thoughts on it. And that certainly changed the landscape of America more than I, I don't know, you, you're seventh president of the United States. You know what I mean? Like you just, you just kind of say like that had more of an impact. I mean, the private sector, politics, politics is downstream of culture and this culture, we are ignoring a lot of the black culture that happened. Um, those are kind of my thoughts on it. Um, we can probably open this up for a debate and discussion at this point. Um, but yeah, th- those are kind of my, my feelings about it. Here, here's the funny thing. If you go to the NFL website right now, mm-hmm. Look up Colin Kaepernick. Look up Tim Tebow. Okay. Picture Colin Kaepernick is associated with his stats. Tim Tebow is a generic football player picture. So the NFL apparently knows they need to keep Tim Tebow's picture or keep Colin Kaepernick's picture in there, but not Tim Tebow's, which was kind of an interesting thing because I was looking up his stats. Um, But this gets back to the whole, you know, Libertarians are usually individualists, usually. I mean, there are collective issues that we need to address, but I think it comes down to it in the end that we are who we are. We can look at our history and say, this is why I'm here. It doesn't mean this is where I'm going. Uh, And that's something we try to tell our kids, everybody, grandkids, 
you can be more than what where you're at, or you can be less. There's a lot of kids who excel at being less than where they're at. So there's a lot of pieces there you can un- unwind. Um, but I think it's just real simple that the, the best way to address these privilege issues is to say, look, you can be whatever you want to be, but it's up to you in the end. And, and, and you know, as we said, George Washington Carver, Frederick Douglass, all these people did these things unknowingly um, for a lot of them. It was, a, it was a footnote, I remember, in my history class. But then again, so was Nikola Tesla. Um, that was mostly because of Edison's marketing of how awesome he was. And when you really look at how what Edison did, he did some interesting things, but he was more Steve Jobs than Elon Musk. So <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big Tesla fan and I could I could jump that track any day. But I, I did want to make the point um, that you made a lot of points, Brian, that I actually agree with you on. Um mm-hmm. On an individual level, um, people have good, bad, and ugly experiences. And I have seen, you know, both ends of the spectrum for people of all colors. And I think that is where the debate happens, where people are communicating and missing each other, right? Because if one side of the argument is, you know, oh, there's, you have privilege, and the other side, you know, the other person's like, um, I grew up in the foster system. My mom was a crackhead and yeah. like, I, you know, I was poor. Like you as an individual may not benefit from the privilege, to use the word, that white people in general may benefit from. That doesn't mean that there's not sort of this nebulous idea that, or this, you know, generalized privilege that exists. And, and Hody touched on that a, a good bit about, you know, the history leading up to, you know, from how our country was founded to today, it's unavoidable, really. I mean, just the systems that had been put in place and that sort of thing, right? So we know that it exists. We know that that's a thing. We know that in poor communities tend to be more often communities of color and have tend to have less opportunity and less access to quality education, quality healthcare, quality jobs, those sort of things. We know, I mean, you can go back to the 80s and, and the crack epidemic, right? And how the, it, this sort of cycle of, you know, well, we have to police the black communities because there's crime in the black communities and there's crime in the black communities because they're police. So we have to police it more. And like, it's this sort of self-feeding cycle. So I do think that there's a miscommunication on both sides. Like we should not dismiss individuals experience, regardless of the color of your skin, you can have phenomenal experiences or terrible experiences as an individual. The systems in place that we are trying to dig ourselves out of, right? I mean, you can go back and look, you know, the Constitution. Black people may have been freed, but they were only three-fifths of of a person kind of thing. Um, You also have issues where 
you know, okay, talking about the 60s and desegregation was this wonderful, amazing thing. And while it seemed super righteous and, you know, granting people of color access to places they had been denied access previously is a good thing. However, it killed the black economy, right? When we open the doors to communities of color to come into our restaurants and our grocery stores and that other, they stopped going to the small businesses in their own community. And we pulled the money out of the black community and put it in the big pot, right? And so like, there's this weird juxtaposition where we do a good, but it has bad consequences. It's unintended, I don't know. Who usually is leading that? Who's who's usually leading that? I, you know, I think there's, I think that's twofold, right? Because minorities, whether it's people of color, um, gender and sexual minorities, immigrants, women, (laughs) you know, there are things that we all want equality or access or whatever for. But to achieve that, we have to work with them, whoever is on the other side of that, right? But who is them in these programs? Who is them? The politicians. Government. Exactly. They're garbage. This is why I'm an anarchist. (laughs) And this is why I'm a libertarian, because the one thing that I come into is, like, D.C. had a voucher program. It was incredibly successful. You had a lottery of black parents begging to get their kids, celebrating, jumping up and down like they won the lottery when their kid got chosen for that. Right. It's a lottery. It's not even an academic skill. It's a lottery, which is better than nothing, but still, it's a lottery. It's a little Hunger Games in my opinion. It's a little Hunger Game that you're doing, which is disgusting because, frankly, the thing is this, hey, that's really popular. We only have 3,000 seats, and we got people begging to get into it. Why aren't we making it 6,000 seats the next year, then 9,000, then 20,000, then the whole frigging system? Right. If it's a successful program, it should be able to grow on its own merits. Why is it always threatening to be canceled? School districts. School districts, because we're here to serve you. And that money is leaving us so we can't serve you. And you think about that. You look at these inner city schools. I can tell you. There's a big difference between poor schools and rich schools, and it's not color related. It's poor schools and rich schools because the culture inside, not not culture as in like the black culture, the, the Latino culture, all these other cultures. The corporate culture inside these schools is they these kids, their parents don't care. So why should you? Now, don't get me wrong, there are teachers out there who are busting their ass trying to get to that one kid to get them to do it. But my kids, for the first couple of years, went to the poor school here in town. I can tell you, my kids got more worksheets and sit down, shut up, and do your worksheet time in that school than they ever did anywhere else. I can also tell you that I had a teacher that if I could do this in every district, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Teacher ran a school out of her basement for a few years, 120 bucks a month. Yes, we could afford it, blah, blah, blah. 10 kids, 
They come in, she teaches them for about three, four hours a day. They get through all their stuff. They go on their happy way. You go into a school and watch these kids. Well, the amount of time that they spend learning, learning in school, three to four hours. Yeah. These kids are in school for eight hours. They spend about maybe three, four hours learning. The rest of the time, they're bouncing between classes, going to study hall, you know, go to this class or go to something silly, you know, go to lunch, go play outside. But you think about that. Three, four hours is really about the maximum amount of seat time most people, adults eat and adults even are like, you know, we don't want to sit in this thing. Absolutely agree. Better ways to do this. Why aren't we doing it when we have demand from parents who are going, hello, please help us get to these kids so they can go to better schools. School choice fixes, I think, all of this. It's not a fact of the district. The dollar follows the kid. The parent wants to drag the kids over to that school because they're better. You better let that kid in. And those schools get the dollars, and they'll find a way. I got news for you. School's going to sit there and go, wait, we got 300 kids that want to go to our school. We're going to find a way to put an addition on to get those 300 kids in here. Or we're going to open another building and take our take part of our leadership and put it over there. So this is the problem, though. It comes down to it. Everyone's got good intentions, and then government gets involved. Teacher yeah. unions, political unions, all these other groups get involved and flush it down because, gosh darn it, that's – that's not what we wanted to do. We wanted it to be like this. And and when you're and I know we're sort of jumping back, yeah. but I, I'm I'm with you on that. And I, I think actually this pandemic has really shown a spotlight on how important school choice is. And it really for a lot of parents who, you know, drop your kid off in the morning, pick them up in the afternoon, how was your day? Because I've been busy working all day. You're learning very quickly that that is a glorified daycare and half or less of the time that they're there is actually educational, right? And so now that we've been forced into these situations where we're sitting down with our children trying to get them online and to keep up and do this and that, and I understand for a lot of people this was a huge adjustment, but I realized very, very quickly how much time is wasted when it's one teacher, 25 kids, you know, and I'm sure it's probably not much better in the classroom as it is online. Everyone's talking over each other. There's, you know, this happening, that happening. And I finally just said, enough's enough. And I pulled my kid out and I found an online program. She has skipped a grade, is about to skip her next one, well, or not skip it, but she's bulldozed through the year. And because she only has, I mean, she's already advanced because she's doing three, four hours of work a day, but she's doing the work. Learning. And she's focused. And then she has time to do other things and be social outside of that. But her educational time is one-on-one. And I think for some people, that's hugely beneficial. I understand it's not beneficial for everyone, which, like you said, is why school choice is so important. And this idea that we have to do it exactly the way the school district says, the teachers union says, one size does not fit all when it comes to education. And we are hurting our children that way. And I think you can look at that through the lens of, you know, comparing communities, rich communities, poor communities, white communities, communities of color, those sort of things. And there's, there's some really interesting overlap that happens there. 
um, and what does and does not get achieved in different school districts based on the money that they get yeah. um, and the, their test scores and equipment and tools and computers and books. It's all a part of it. And being it, one of the things here in South Bend that we have that I think is really neat. And while South Bend is kind of a crap area, we uh, do Huntington, Indiana. Huh? I'm in Huntington, Indiana. Are you really? Yes. Hi, Just neighbor. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, How do you get two yeah. people that are probably 90 miles apart, if that? How funny. So we actually do have somewhat of school choice around here, at least when it comes to our high schools. Um, a handful of our high schools are specialized. We have like an arts and music high school. We have STEM high school. Um, there's a couple different ones and you do get a choice and you could, some of them I, you may have to test into, um, you, but it doesn't matter where you live necessarily. They have some like general education high schools. Um, you can go to, if you live in the area and you just want to go to high school. Um, so there is some flexibility here, which has proved really beneficial. Um, and I, I think they could as Larry Sharp says, take that one step further. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, my, my thing, it's funny, you guys, I'm glad you mentioned education because I have 10 examples here on my notes of, of like kind of the most obvious examples of, of, uh, you know, systemic racism or white privilege and, and uh, three of them kind of involve education. Um, I myself, I can share kind of a similar example to you guys. Our kids are actually struggling in school and we pulled them out. Um, halfway through between when we pulled them out, which was like around Christmas time one year and the next summer, I got them caught up and it wasn't just caught up on that. We actually, I used, um, I used some of the resources at the Khan Academy as well as the schools. They have, most of them have their own materials online. So I was like, what's the curriculum? What's you're supposed to learn? What's it you're supposed to learn? So I gathered all these things and I actually caught them up. And when I first pulled them out, they were in second and third grade. And when I, when we pulled them out, um, they weren't able to do like kindergarten level stuff. Like they're like, I hadn't heard of, you know, I think in first grade, you're supposed to learn about like Egypt. And they're like, I, I don't know, pharaohs, I guess, are from Egypt, you know? And you're like, okay, so you didn't even learn this stuff. So we went all the way back. I had them start over from the very beginning. I caught them up. We put them back in school. They fell behind again. I caught them up. We put them back in school. And then this last time we pulled them out, I just said, that's it. I'm not going back. Like I can't, I want to make it work. Because, of course, being a libertarian, I don't love public school. I don't love public anything. But, <laughs> but I, I, want the, I wanted them to have, like, you know, the social benefits and, and everything like that. But I think you can't talk about the social benefits of school without talking about the social drawbacks. And ultimately, a lot of bullying is happening. Um, when people talk about getting bullied or getting molested, schools have an elevated rate of that happening. And it's like these things can't – I can't just forgive your sins because what you – do well or what you're supposed to do well, I believe in. You don't do what you're supposed to do well. And then you have all these drawbacks and I'm supposed to believe they're going to learn. It's like learning a healthy social environment in prison just because you're around other inmates. Like it's not that that logic doesn't quite sync up. That's not a healthy social environment. I can teach my kids and, and put them in a healthy social environment. That's a lot more voluntary and a lot more positive. Now, um, I know that's probably getting a little bit off the subject of white privilege, but that does have a lot to do with schools. And actually that has a lot to do with what I wanted to talk about next, which was kind of the systemic nature of all this mm -hmm. and how 
when people talk about institutionalized racism, they're not just talking about Jim Crow laws or keeping people on the farm. What they're talking about is saying you have to pass this test that was designed with what, what white people enjoy the most. What we believe is, you know, these white people say, hey, this is what makes society great and not all this stuff. And if you don't pass that, then you're not of much value to this system, right? You get you get ostracized, you drop out, and you get into this whole like, hey, you better make it the NBA or you're never going to make it type of situations. And these things are, they're, they're awful, but they do exist. And it's not something that I, I think for me, it's hard because I always excelled at testing. And I was really good because I knew what they wanted. I grew up in a family environment that valued, you know, and I don't want to just say, because a lot of people like, I think this gets miscommunicated a lot because a lot of people say, what, you're saying math is racist? Because there are people who have gone that far, right? Yeah. And like, I'm not going to defend every single, uh, there are racists on like the the left and right that kind of use it differently. We talked, I think one in an earlier episode, I talked about how like Coke did a racism, you know, with the, with, with the, you know, where, where they said, you know, uh, <laughs> stop being white. And then they're like, no, no. And their backtrack was even worse when they said, when we stop, be- say, stop being white, we meant stop being jealous, stop being, you know, mistrustful, stop being angry, stop being envious, stop being prideful. And it's like, if I said stop being black and then you got offended and I said, no, no, no. What I mean by stop being black is stop beating your wife or stop breaking the laws or stop. You, that people would be like, oh, okay. You just got more racist, right? Like you messed <laughs> up. Okay. Like you, you screwed that up. And that is like way racist stuff. And so like, I understand that it exists all around. And there are times you can find bad actors that will get up there and be like, this is why math is racist or this is why this is racist. I'm not at all saying that, but what I am and math is extremely valuable and it's great and I'm good at math and I'm good at writing and I'm good at reading. And Hey, that's the SAT, right? So I did pretty well on the ACT and SATs and all that stuff, but that's not all that the human, the human mind isn't reading, writing and math, right? That is not what, makes for a good person or a quality person, or even a person that contributes the most to society. Those are examples. So the fact that we have these gateways, right? To say like, Hey, all you got to do is pass these things and you can move on. Well, I'm, I tell you what, I am really lucky. There's not a drawing section on the SAT because I would be the dumbest kid. You know, I would have dropped out very early in schools. I can't draw at a kindergarten level. It's really bad. I've even tried and taken courses before. I even tried, tried like with my uncle, who's like, I can turn anybody into an artist who's been like, well, except for you, like you were really bad at this, like your brain, whatever's there. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if it was just damaged or something, but like, I, you don't have it in you. You just don't have it, you know? And that's, here's the thing. That's okay. But I'm lucky to grow up in a system where that wasn't necessary. It's just as arbitrary. If you think about it, it is literally just as arbitrary to say, we're going to make, instead of the SAT being reading, writing, and math, I'm going to make the SAT um, drawing, uh, weaving, and uh, code. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Somehow, right? And so, (laughs) right. And so they choose these things, and that I'm lucky and I have a history of, and I haven't been ostracized by public education. And you look at people that don't have a history being brought into public education, then we put them in public education 
education, then they fall behind and they try to catch up. And of course, the system is going to perpetuate so long as we keep these standard minimums in place and saying you are only valuable to this system, this school system, you're only valuable in if you have these qualities. And that is wrong. That is flatly wrong. And it's something that we need to get rid of. Um, Anybody else? Does anybody have, I guess, beefs with the idea of racism being systemic or white supremacy being systemic? Well, I, I have a beep. We mentioned Ray Lewis earlier. Okay. Ray Lewis was involved in a fight. Two people died. Ray Lewis got, um, didn't he get probation? He, he, he pled guilty to obstructing justice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think he got probation. Um, if you have enough money, you can get out of anything. I think we've seen that enough. If you have enough political clout, Hunter Biden, uh, you can get out of pretty much anything you want. That's the problem, is that, you know, we like the idea that we're equal under law, and the reality is we're not. If you have a good defense attorney, if you have a good, if you've got enough money, if your dad knows the governor or somebody else, you know, the prosecutor gets a phone call and says, you really shouldn't pursue that. Might be bad for your career. Gets dropped. So there's a lot more to unwrap there. Are there aspects of it that are inherently racist? Yes, but they're more geared towards those that are socially, economically, you know, on on the bottom third, bottom quarter of the economic percentile, which a majority of those people are, you know, black, Latino, whatever, white, et cetera. And that's the problem. What these people usually get delve into is drugs and the drug war is a very profitable thing for the government. You know, oh, look, we've done something bad. Look how awesome we are and look how much money we've taken off. Look, we took this revolver from 1917 and 50 bucks off this crack dealer. Well, I'm glad there's no, not going to be a, a, a shootout at the OK Corral tomorrow. So, um, but that's the things that we have to look at here is what, what are the continuing drivers of that behavior? And a lot of it's the drug war. So I think most people in the libertarian movement, and I think most people are starting to realize that the drug war really is a terrible idea. And we can thank Richard Nixon for that, for everything that you said earlier, Lou, about uh, going after the communities of color um, to to go ahead and save them from the scourge of it. And so you save them from the scourge by uh, throwing dads in prison. Yeah. Now all of a sudden these kids are growing up in single parent homes. What were they talking about earlier? Foster homes. Right. What's the first thing they do? And it's, it's not an American thing. You're about the Aborigines in, in Australia. The English would wander in and said, we're going to take your kids. We're going to give them a proper English upbringing without mm-hmm. mom and dad inside of a school that you don't want to be at and you don't understand the language. And we're going to beat you until you do. So. I like, I think the, to touch on Ray Lewis, I think that is an, Ray Lewis is an example of what, you know, wealth and fame can do for you. In, right. Um, but as as a man of color getting sort of a slap on the wrist in the justice system, he is an outlier. Like, oh, yeah. if you were to strip away, like, so, like, and I know you know this, like, statistically speaking, there is definitely disparities in our justice system where... People of color are, you know, they're convicted more often. Their sentences are harsher. Their their communities are policed more. 
um, I can walk down the street and probably smoke a joint and nobody would think twice about it. Right? Indiana is probably still a little. I don't know. I live really, really close to Michigan. And so around here, they're kind of like, yeah, yeah that's that's okay. I, I'm down more further south. That's that. Uh, what are you doing smoking the devil's lettuce? You're going to jail, buddy. <laughs> right. But that said, in, um, you know, I, I kind of I kind of have had sort of this weird, like firsthand view of two different communities here, right? Because we just moved into a, a new neighborhood. But where we had been living is we were literally like the only white people on the block. Um, the average home value, I think, is like $60,000. Um, half of the homes are vacant. It, uh, there's crime is rampant. Mm -hmm. It's that community, right? And so we moved because I had a bullet come through my bedroom window, literally 18 inches from my head. So that's fun. That's fun. Um, yeah, good time. Um, yeah, like, okay, to be fair, like, I know it was just some idiots in the alley, like, screwing off with their guns. Like, I, nobody was targeting me. Like, I'm not, you know, it was just idiots playing with their guns. Like, idiots, right? <laughs> yeah, that's enough. That would be enough if that happened in my neighborhood for me to go. Yeah, neighborhoods every day, but then we'll we'll get into that discussion later. Right. Sorry. So we moved to, and and we make jokes about this all the time because my husband and I are not. I don't think we fit into this neighborhood. Like we were fine there. Like we had we had people, you know, we hung out with, and like we felt good. There. We move here, and we're covered in tattoos, we're pierced, and this, that, and the other, and we move into this neighborhood, and people. You know, I like to call them the Susans in their athleisure wear, like walking their Yorkies every day at the same time. It's, it's really strange. Um, but we do see this really odd um, but very apparent difference in how law enforcement interacts with people. Oh, yeah. Totally different. Yeah. Around here, it's howdy neighbor Mayberry shit. And over there, it's, what are you doing? What are, you know, like, if we see them at all over here, it's one thing. Over there, it's constant. And it's, you know, they're patting people down on the streets. It's it's a nightmare. And they, half of those people I know aren't doing anything. Yeah. You know, I, we had a neighbor, an older guy, trying to take care of his mom because he couldn't afford a nursing home for her. And, like. He'd borrow our car sometimes or ask to mow our lawn for 20 bucks so he could go pick up our meds or whatever. You know, it's totally different worlds. And it does, it's frustrating to me to see those, you know, the community and public servants who are supposed to serve and protect treat people in one community one way and in another a different way. And you would have a totally different relationship with people in those communities, if you just treated them, like they weren't doing something wrong for sitting on their front porch. Right. Oh, yeah. No. It's awful. It, it's ridiculous. But also, you probably have a couple cops living in your neighborhood that, you know, and that's maybe a big difference. I got three that live in mine. So um, it's a different experience because they are legitimately my neighbors and I wave to them and say hi. <laughs> right. But, uh, and, and they're nice people. So um, for all the, you know, I, I, 
this has been <laughs> such a mess. Um, <laughs> right. It really has been. And I, I, this gets back to the whole systemic nature of things. There's a systemic nature for government to fix a problem. Now, there's a systemic nature for also government to measure how they're fixing a problem. And what is the usual metric they use? The stupidest one on the planet, usually. Well, we arrested 57 people this week. Okay, what'd you arrest them for? Uh, little stuff, you know. This guy was jaywalking and he talked back to us. This guy was mowing his lawn at 9.30. He said something about getting off work late and it was the only time he's going to have to do it. And da, da 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 When you start digging into that stuff, you go, why'd you arrest them? Well, well. You know, we have a standard, and this is this is the funny part of it. You ever go ask a police officer, what's your quota? We don't have a quota. We don't have a quota. What's your standard? There's a difference. You say, well, our standard is normally we should have five interactions per, you know, shift, you know, like five interactions per shift, ten interactions, you know. And on average, that should work out to be like, one or two arrests a week and blah, blah, blah. And of course I'm using really stupidly underinflated numbers, but in the end it's, it's not a quota. It's a standard. Right. And it's what politicians use and what government agencies use to measure how awesome they are. So they can tell us in the media when they have their big press conference about how they opened a baby box and probably spent $5,000 on stupid stuff and the press comes out and takes pictures of it and all this stuff because we opened the box. You know, I, it's it's these things that, that just government just likes to keep patting themselves on the back and say how awesome we're doing. Because look what we're doing with your money. It's so awesome. Here's what we're doing. And don't you think it's awesome? And you're like, okay. Fix you know what they don't tell you they're doing with your money is like the hundreds of thousands of dollars of tax dollars that are going to things like Studying the sexual behaviors of ducks on cocaine. Not even kidding. That's a real thing. Like I can see that. I've got some cool, timid ducks. They they probably needed a little coke in their lives to pep up their sex life. So, <laughs> right. so like these are the dumb things that our tax dollars are going to when we have real problems. Like, and okay, maybe it's only a few hundred thousand dollars, which is like a molecule of a drop in the bucket in the ocean of tax dollars, but it adds up because that is one little thing. It's, and there's a bazillion of them. It's it's somebody's job. It's a job somebody wanted to do and they wrote a grant and they and they said, boy, if we had a grant to, to fund ducks doing cocaine, that sounds good. Yeah, we need to know we need to get that answer. And some politician said, Yep, you need to do that because I like you. And I have a connection to you for whatever reason, friendship, family, whatever. And I want you to continue doing that study on ducks on cocaine because it's going to keep you happy and then keep me happy. Right. We should come up with something really dumb and write a grant and see if we get the money. Oh, they've done that. Oh, I love the the, the, the people that were writing about um, uh, walking your dog was inherently sexist. And they wrote up a whole bunch of papers. And I'll have to look it up. And I wasn't prepped for that part of it. But they wrote up a whole bunch of papers that were accepted. Uh, if, if you are, if it was like if you wore a hat a certain way, that it was male privilege for you to wear the hat, and it was it was inherently against the way, blah blah blah. And it was like that, that's like everybody the way they wear a hat, or it's like that's, everybody walks a dog. You know, if you own a dog, you're going to walk it. So <laughs> it, this way, and they wrote it in this flourishing language 
that people were like, this is brilliant. You've never saw this coming. Enough jargon will convince anybody of anything. There's the one, and Brian, I think it might have been the same people that wrote um, wrote something that actually didn't have any complete sentences in it. Like, like they just used big words that kind of sounds like sounded like sentences all put together. Made a whole essay, got it published by like a major outlet, and we're like, there's literally not one actual sentence in the whole thing. Like, it's it's uh, incoherent. Um, that happens a lot. Okay, so we are we are at about time. I don't want to. I don't want to rush through this. Unfortunately, I did have some notes that we didn't get to, but I, I'm just going to bang out these bullets and then I'll let you guys bang out a few bullets here in just a second here. Mm-hmm. I did want to say this. Here's the problem if you don't accept that there is kind of some, some kind of systemic racism is if you don't accept that, it's hard to not be racist. And let me explain why. And that is because you look at the demographics in the country and they're overwhelmingly showing that. And I don't even want to say that white people are in the top, because actually, if you break it down demographic by demographic, according to Wikipedia, white people are actually in the lower half, which is funny. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we because we have a lot of other specific Democrats, uh, demographics that like succeed. But if you do look at like the top three fourths of them, they're all well above the you know, we're doing okay. You can live on these kind of salaries if you look at these incomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you look at the bottom and just bottoming out with, with the black population. And I mean, we're talking half of like what white people make, white white households make. Mm-hmm. And with greater family numbers, even these numbers could get worse if you measured it by person as opposed to by household. So you have to understand that we're even using numbers that try to make it look less bad. Um, And it's difficult to explain how we got in a situation outside of you guys keep hurting yourselves. We have nothing to do with it. The system is fine. It's you people who are flawed. Um, That is wrong. Um, And we, as I've explained with the school system, we have several different systems with which we measure people. I did want to say this. There's such a thing as the pedestrian dilemma. Um, This is if I hit somebody with my car and I'm at fault. And I can pay for their rehabilitation. I can try to make amends. I can do everything I can. And it's unfortunate, but it is true that at some point they do have to, they have to be, do the rehabilitation themselves. This is a lot of kind of where the black uh, community is at. I really love books like the bluest eye and raisin in the sun. These are like considered like American classics because they address what the black community is going through right now. And it's not necessarily all white people are actively keeping us down. It's we are in these shattered societies because of our history and we need help rebuilding them. We just, you can't just expect everything to get better. If there's a broken clock, you can't just be like, well, stop touching it and it'll start working. No, you, you need to fix it, Like you need to repair it and make it better. So what we should do is we do need to work to dismantle this, these systemic ways that things are bad. And yes, I, of course, you know, a lot of people will dismiss, our, you know, anything that I have to say because they'll be, say, look at violent crime. Look at what's happening in Chicago. Look at black on black crime. These are all problems, but these are problems that are largely reactions to necessary reactions to a lot of what has happened in our history. We cannot expect them to fix these community problems until we give them a system and a situation in which it's perfectly fine and acceptable for them to be outside of it. They need to be normalized working in STEM, you know, jobs. They need to be normalized working in, I mean, racing, uh, astronauts. I mean, we're talking everything, you know, and, uh, and I'm not saying overrepresented either. I understand you're not looking at something. I'm not saying for every one white person you hire, you have to hire one black person, but I'm saying that it shouldn't be weird, 
right? Like, and, and we go through these trials in America. We say it was one time it was weird when we hired female pilots. Well, it stopped being as weird and that's a good thing. It needs to not be weird. It was weird when we had a female uh, Supreme Court justice. It was weird when we had a black Supreme Court justice. These things need to stop being weird. I do think we're on the right path. Um, I oh, want to bring up Charleston. You know? <laughs> uh, Char- <laughs> Charlottesville is an example uh, that I always think of when I think of kind of moments in history that kind of changed my perspective a lot. I Because I didn't see, like, for me, if you're a racist here in my community, like, if, if you have a Confederate flag, you're going to get your car keyed. If you rode in the car, like if you're riding around in your white hat or you had like a swastika tattoo or something, you're going to get beat up. You're going to I actually worked at a restaurant where somebody got stabbed in the parking lot for for, you know, uh, for for being a white supremacist. Right. Like it's a very dangerous place to be a white supremacist or even like borderline white supremacist. And I'm not saying that that is good. I'm not saying that like threats of violence are great or that this is what we need to do. But uh, for me, this was entirely how I viewed, like when people were like, look at all the racism. I'm like, what are you talking about? Racists get their butts kicked. Like if you don't, if you're not an active anti-racist, you're not going to have a good time here. But then I looked like to other events in the world and I looked at like Charlottesville and I looked at like politicians that were like, yeah, KKK parade, I'll sign off on that. And I was like, man, that wouldn't happen here. Like, and I look at people cheering them on and I'm like, how are these, like, if you tried doing that same parade in my town, like there would be shooters on rooftops, just raining bullets down on you while you tried to do your parade, you would get murdered. Like it would be a bloodbath. You can't be doing that, but that is not everyone's world. And if it's not your world, that's okay. Lastly, I did want to say a lot of what we've done with our history has affected people's idea of their self-worth systemic racism is not limited to a white person problem. And this is perhaps the most heartbreaking part to me about kind of white privilege and race relations in this country is it carries on over to the black community. And they feel that they are not worth it because they say we aren't as good at these things. And you will poll after poll, and this is all the way back to Jim Crow, but it continues today to say like, are black people as good at, you know, do they have, are they as capable as white people at math? And they'll say, no, are they as capable of white people as following the, you know, following the law? No, we're not. We're not capable. We're not worth it. We're not valid. We don't have this place in society. We need to find some weird alternate society to be part of because we don't belong here. It's for me, that affects your self-worth. When you have a self-worth that is lower because you think other people are inherently more beautiful. Um, I have an example right here. If you Google um, uh, beauty, and then count the and just uh, images and then scroll down, count the people of color, you're going to be scrolling down for a long time. That's very unfortunate. And the thing is, is if you feel that you are less beautiful or less smart or less valid, you are going to have a series of problems that occur within your community, within your family, because you don't think you can do it. And as a libertarian, this for me is probably the most tragic part of the entire thing because we are individualists. We are individual empowerment. This is the solution to freedom. And this is why I, as a libertarian, still talk about systemic racism and fight against these things the way that I do and use the language that I use against it because it is 
people that feel that they are lesser individuals will naturally feel that they need a government watching over them, will necessarily feel like they need some kind of authority, or will necessarily feel that they deserve the situation that they're in, that say, well, maybe I should, shouldn't happen, but it's what happens and who can blame them because we suck or I suck or, you know, I, I can't handle this. I can't do these things. And if you think you can't do these things, you're going to behave in a way in which that you think you can't do these things. You say, I'm no better than a life of crime. So I might as well. I'm not good at being a father. So I'm not going to try. I'm not good at being a mom. So I'm not going to try. I'm not good at, you know, at at school. So I'm not going to try. And this is, while I find it to be the biggest tragedy, I guess there's some debate there, especially with such a violent history of racism. For me, currently, that's the biggest problem. That's why as a libertarian, keep talking about it. Um, It breaks my heart. Um, And I I, I agree with you. And I kind of wanted to touch on that point. And I think that as you know as white people we have a responsibility you know and whether it's uh, take take race out of the situation right if i am the stronger person in the room and someone smaller than me is getting picked on like i i have a moral obligation to step in and protect or say like that's not okay and we should be better and do better you know, and the, it's actions, not words, right? So I look at with Tom Cruise. We talked, mentioned earlier how he gave back his awards. Like, you earned an award for what you did. I'm not a Cruise fan, but whatever. Whoever decided you earned the award, like, you earned it. Giving it back doesn't help anybody. It's performative allyship, in my opinion. Like, what you should do is go produce a movie and hire a bunch of people of color. Like, no, it's a shit that you gave back an award. That's that's useless. What does that do for anybody? Nothing. Are, are you looking for for celebrities to do something useful? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brian, close us up with celebrities that do something useful. Here he comes. Okay, here he goes. <laughs> that's a very short show. Gary, Gary Sinise. <laughs> I will give Gary Sinise. Okay. Nice guy. I met him in Charleston. Yeah. Uh, I've heard that. I've heard he's a nice guy. There's a few musicians I probably would put in that list somewhere. Um, can't think of really any of them at the top of my head at the moment. <laughs> um, John Bon Jovi. Uh, he does his soup kitchen, um, and you see pictures of him. He's actually washing dishes. He actually does that, so I'll give him that. Um, but, yeah, the thing is this. The vast number of people that are the head of these movements are terrible people in most pa- most cases. Uh, the leader of Black Lives Matter buying her second, third house with the Black Lives Matter money she got to help raise. And she bought it in, I think it was Topanga Canyon, which is a not cheap part of L.A. County. And L.A. County is expensive, uh, especially that part. This is the neat, no, we could we can drive through there maybe once in a while and we probably will get pulled over. I've done it. <laughs> so... But this gets back to what you were saying before, Hody, and stuff like that, and then other talks about we need to step up for these communities. I hate that idea. And and please hear me out on this. The big, tough guy that's supposed to stand up for the little guy. Okay, that's fine. Does the little guy ever learn how to step up for themselves? Does, Does the big guy think that they all of a sudden have to become the cop for all the little people? goes back also to what you said earlier about stepping up for the communities and things like that. 
who are we to say we are here? We can be, you can be an ally, but, but you're not here to actively take out people. And, and like Hody, like you were talking about, I think you and I have talked about this before. I detest the idea of saying that you come to our community and do that. We're going to shoot you. Um, number one, that's murder. Uh, most libertarians are kind of against that. Uh, no matter what the hateful speech is. Uh, I grew up in the seventies. Uh, yes, I'm that old. Um, and I remember the, the, the protest that went on when the Nazis wanted to march to Skokie. Skokie is a primarily Jewish community in Chicago. A lot of Holocaust survivors. And the Nazis wanted to walk through. If you ever watched the blues brothers, that was based on reality for that little, not the car flying. And I always love you. But, but the marching through the area. And, and if you look at who defended that, it was the ACLU. And they were 100% correct. When, when government starts policing speech, terrible things always come out of it. And we've seen that numerous times. So, Hody, I want the Nazis to march through your neighborhood. I really do. I want them to march through my neighborhood. I want to see the people come out and talk to them and convert them. I have a friend of mine who had a swastika tattoo. Nice guy. And you're going to think, Brian, you're nuts. How are you going to associate with him? I didn't know about it. But when you talk, when you find out about his background and what he's been through and what he feels about that, how his parents programmed him for that, how he feels ashamed about it and how he's, I believe at this point, it's taken, it got taken off. What, what has done more to change that person's mind? Somebody threatening to put a gun to his head and blow him off, blow his head off because he's got a swastika tattoo or realizing over time and realizing that this was wrong and I need to change. And once again, I'm going to bring up Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis has done more for the community as a whole in converting hardcore KKK. Let's go ahead and do the old, what they did back in Marion, Indiana, back a hundred years ago, has done more to convert people's hearts than any, any protest, any threat of violence against people. Because the minute you threaten violence against somebody for their thoughts, what are they going to do? They're going to grab their guns. And then we're done talking at that point. So I I don't want people getting shot because they have terrible views. I want terrible views met with great views. Sure. And and people to learn from that. So sorry. I I hope what I said didn't sound like a defense. Like I said, (laughs) you come to this town, we're going to shoot you. It's kind of like My thing is, though, is that's just my Experience, that's my community. I wouldn't shoot him, but like I know you wouldn't. Totally right. It's it's the G like it's the Jesus example of converting people. They thought he was gonna come with a sword and he ended up coming with words, you know, like words and actions. Like you convert people, but you know, they said we're gonna take over Rome and Jesus like, yeah, but not not the way you're thinking right now, you know. And I I feel like I know not everybody has to be a Christian. That's just my personal example. Okay, I'm gonna take a break there before we get into pieces of my mind. Everybody stay tuned. We'll be back in just a moment. Okay, welcome back, everybody. We are going to do the peace of my mind section. I will start off. Uh, we got to go a little bit fast on these, and thankfully I have one that I feel we can sum up in a hurry. Um, we were maybe going to do a full episode about this, but I'm not sure if we have uh, people that are qualified enough. And the more I researched it, the more I understand why. Uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has, is, you could say, decades old. You could say centuries old. You can say millennia old. This is an old conflict that is is going on. And war is bad, okay, is kind of, let me Tarantino this for you where I get to the ending before I, before I get through the rest. Like, so war is bad is the end of this, right? Like war is bad, fighting is bad, violence is bad. 
Um, and how did I get to that conclusion? Look, here's the thing. We all want to be the best detective. We all want to get out our magnifying glass and say, well, who started this fight? And, and, and look at it that way. And so I, Jamie and I this past weekend have actually been, been trying to do that. Been like, okay, because we got a lot of, I, I posted something about how uh, terrorists from both sides were bad. And I got some, uh, yeah, not serious blowback, but, you know, some, some argumentation that the Palestinians were the ones that were really at fault. Or the Israelis were, were the ones that were really at fault, you know, and, and both of them. You know, people that were ve- people were very angry that I condemned both of the warmongers from both sides, and that I would use the word warmongers to describe one side or the other, as opposed you know, as opposed to just one side or the other. When I tried to get to the bottom of it, there is no end. You just say, "Why did the Israelis do this this last week?" Well, they did it because of this and this execution. Okay, why did that execution happen? Oh, well, they did it because of. This, you know, this attack over here. Well, why did that attack? That attack happened because of over here. This will never end if we just accept that we need to get in the final blow until one side is completely genocidally eliminated. The world is a worse off place with genocide and when there's a full elimination of people. And I feel that I can kind of like, here's the thing. And and Jamie and I even got into like ancient, ancient history. And there was actually a point where... um, you know, we, we're looking in, and not just from a biblical perspective, because while I am a Christian, I, I do consult history even before I consult uh, the Bible in terms of these matters. But they were looking at like when the is- Israelites went back to Canaan and started conquering the Canaanites. And um, the, the, it turns out that the Israelites were actually at one time, like they come from like the same genetic sequence from the Canaanites. Like it's Canaanite on Canaanite violence. Like they themselves were former Canaanites. They just were the ones that left for Egypt and they left the rest of their people there. Mm-hmm. So it's like a civil war. And then it's been, it's so convoluted. Like there are people that came from Greece in the beginning and, and like the whole term Palestine, I think is even, even comes with like a Greek word, right? Like, like, yeah, like it's barely even like Arab. And I mean, even for, from a religious perspective where they talk about Hagar and Ishmael, you know, versus um, Sarah and Isaac, when the, when the split happens between the Jews and the Muslims. And it's just like, they can't, they come from the same place, that same violence. And it's really sad that we don't take the lesson that God gave Abraham uh, for those Christians or Jews out there who say, "Oh no, Hagar and I and, and Ishmael are blessed as well. Like those are also my people. I'm not dividing people here. Like I, I love all my children. These are also my children. Like uh, you guys can follow your history all you want, and certainly you have a relationship with me. But they're gonna have a relationship with me too. And that's something that I think gets lost track." of a lot. I understand it's a complicated situation. If you think that you have a religious right to owning something, it's very hard to dissuade you from that. My biggest argument would just be, I I would say that I would use God's many, 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 many examples from the Old Testament and the New Testament that says, I am with you. I am not in an Ark of the Covenant. I'm in your heart. I'm not in your temple. You are the temple. You are the synagogue. God is wherever two or more people gather. I am where you unite in song. I mean, you can find over and over in the Old Testament, these scriptures and and in the Torah that talk about how, listen, maybe this holy land concept isn't such a great concept when it comes to property and more so, or, or nationalist property, but more so when it comes to 
togetherness with your family and personal property. That's libertarian as hell. And it's something that's kind of iterated within the Old Testament for me. And I and I admit because I'm a Christian myself, I don't come from from the you know the, the Muslim background, but there as well to say, like, listen. Where's the real, you know, you can cherry pick certain verses that I feel that God kind of overrules or Allah overrules even in the own book, you know, where you just, where they say like, this is an important piece of land or something like that. But why is it important? Usually because of either some strategic value or that it's good for the kingdom of heaven. And, and this is not good for the kingdom of heaven. What's going on right now? The first people to drop their weapons, those are the winners in my mind. And you just need to stop. I, I can't. There's so much history there and I could keep going into it. I've studied enough religion that I've kind of been on top of a little bit of the conflict in the Middle East. I could go further into it, but I'm telling you that the water gets murkier more than it gets cleaner the more you get into this. There is no <clears throat> the easiest way to make it is just that everybody who is fighting is guilty <laughs> and everybody who is not fighting is innocent and the fighting just needs to stop. Um and that's about as simple. Brian, what do you think? Uh, how much time do we have no um <laughs> it, it gets back to when where is my rights to what happened to my family and there's there's got to be a statute of limitations my do i have a right to my family's land that was taken from me from the kaiser back in the early 1900s probably not probably not that's been well developed and they i went storming in there and saying well this was taken from me by by the kaiser well, I, I probably don't have a leg to stand on. The German government would probably throw me out pretty quickly. It, it's the same thing we have to ask. At what point does it stop being a statute of limitations? Um, did Israelis steal land from Palestinians? Yes. Did Israelis get ejected from various Arab lands for being Jewish? Yes. Um, as you said, this gets murky and murky. My, my big problem that I have with violence overall is the un unfettered violence against civilians. That, that's if, if you want to play army and go shoot each other, that's fine. I have a hard time watching missiles that are as long as a school bus being lobbed, not, on, not imprecisely on purpose to, you know, various communities. Uh, it, it, we think that the blitz on London was a terrible thing that happened to London because V1s, V2s would come raining down. And that's the whole point. It was terror. That's the same thing. <laughs> it's the same darn thing. So I have a hard time. And this really is a proxy war. Let's be honest here. This is, this is various, you know, most likely Iran, uh, propping up um, the Palestinian cause. Uh, as you know, that Palestinians felt pretty, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, offended and rejected by a number of other Arab nations, Saudis, inclu the Saudis included, when they made peace with it, when they made agreements and peace with Israel. I think at this point, Israel has a right to exist. Um, I think that there has to be work on developing Gaza West Bank into its own Palestinian country if it wants to, which is what Israel has already given them. Um, but I also think that there's a lot of corruption in the Palestinian government that they're far more profitable. Um, you know, Yasser Arafat's Swiss bank accounts were obnoxiously large. Um, I think there's a lot more profit in war than there is in peace. We know that in the USA, and it's a, it's a well-known thing worldwide. So 
I think we start chasing, start chasing down where that money's going. You're going to start seeing a lot of things end very quickly. Lou, what do you think? You know, and you really hit the nail on the head. I'm certainly not qualified to opine a whole lot on this. I the whole thing is terribly sad to me. Um, I will coming at this from a journalist perspective. Um, journalism being sort of a big chunk of my background. Um, looking at headlines, depending on where you're at, what country you're in, um, it's it's really sad because one headline will say, you know, X number of Palestinians killed in attack. They don't say anything other than that. And then another headline will say, you know, a whole bunch of Israeli civilians. And I think everybody in this war for the moment, I mean, they have their militaries, right? But the people on the ground on both sides are all civilians. There are children. And I have seen, and even as a journalist myself, like I don't know what's what. I have seen so many pictures passed around and I've seen the same picture with the caption that, you know, Palestinians did this to the Jews or that the Israelis did this to the Palestinians. And it's the same picture. You don't know who's who. It's the, the media is not helping the situation, you know, and then there's of course this whole, as if racism and, and the isms, right. Isn't a big enough issue right now. Then you put on top of that, this conflict and then everybody wants you know as an american you have to have an opinion and you have to have a say and i don't really know but it feels like if i don't pick one side then i'm anti-semitic and if i pick the other side then i'm an islamophobe and i don't know like to me i don't know what's right i wasn't there <laughs> i didn't you know, and I've heard 10 different versions of this, right? Of who supposedly gets this or that, but, you know, it's just, I don't know. I just, I want it to stop. I want everybody to be happy. Like the lefty in me is very much like a peace loving hippie. And I'm like, can't we all just get a little, you know, like just have a big commune? Whatever. Like, I, Break my heart to see families and children in the middle of this. And I hate that it's so targeted at civilian communities and there's so much finger pointing that it's hard to weed through it all. Mm-hmm. My, I, I think Lou just, it's a perfect conclusion to my point because I think we dismiss that whole like, oh, peace, love and hippie. That's the emotional side versus the intellectual side. I'm telling you that the further you go into the intellectual side, the more you will despise war. It's yeah. just, so yeah. if, if you are doing it out of your heart, that's great. Know that the knowledge is there to back it yeah. up as well. <laughs> so yeah. History on, on both of these sides mm-hmm. that they have a right to be ticked off at some point. You have to stop being ticked off because it can, as we all know, it consumes you. And if it consumes you, that's what you become. Right. So. Yeah. Uh, Brian, why don't we go to you for a piece of your mind, buddy? Piece of my mind this week. And this is a good one. I, I was bouncing around a couple of things, but I realistically, 
It's looking at how governments, especially in the U.S., has totally bungled uh, for, for, for giving, being, being probably, probably pretty uh, nice about the statement, uh, the entire COVID crisis and watching people do mental backflips for changes in policy. No one has been really honest in this. Uh, left or right, Fauci, everybody else. They've all said what we think the lowest common denominator needs to hear. And that's the best way I could put it, because here's a great example. Uh, when they changed the mask mandate, and this was all of a sudden, hey, you know what? You're vaccinated. You don't need to wear a mask anymore. You don't need. You can go indoors, outdoors, everything like that. This is a change within a week. I mean, we could go there like you're going to be wearing a mask probably through the summer. We're going to let you know about Fourth of July. If you remember Joe saying that, I mean, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to do this. So. Here's the thing that drives me up the wall about this. And if I talk to most lefties and righties about us as well, the total lack of transparency on their thought process. Uh, you'll see the Senate hearings and the Senate hearings are always just show and just, you know, let me get you in a gotcha moment so I can get my 15 second sound bites. So, but the reality is a lot of this decision-making is being based on some science, but it's being delivered by government bureaucrats who of course are worried about two things, their job, and they're there and how good they look on TV. Um, it would have been very simple to say in any one of these Senate hearings, we are trending towards this. We are doing studies of being able to let vaccinated people not wear masks. We don't know when exactly. We're still doing studies. These studies are in effect. Here's the time frame it takes to complete the study. We have to go this time because we need to get this many people. And we need to measure them for this amount of time based on scientific numbers. You can do the executive summary at the beginning saying, we don't know, but we'll let you know, and it's getting close, and follow up with the data. This is not hard to do. We do this every day in business. Why can't they do that? And, and it just really drives up the wall because when you go to talk to lefties, righties, they are all of a sudden have built their entire thought process around these silly COVID procedures. You know, I have to wear the mask to show that I'm – and I'm, I'm not a Republican or something like that, or that I'm vaccinated. I, I want you to think about that. I, I, every time I've heard somebody say, I, say, I want you to think about that statement. Are you more worried about looking bad or feeling bad? <laughs> if you're more worried about looking bad, you know, there's a guy, and Billy Christie's do SNL. Uh, you know, it's better to look good than to feel good. That is you. And you're more worried about virtue of signaling to everybody about whatever political allegiance you have. So is it terrible that a private business still asks us to wear masks? No, if you want to go and wear it. But if you don't want to patronize them, don't. But government, in the end, has done a bond, wonderful job of screwing this up and eroding any trust we have in each other or in the system. And frankly, that was their end goal in the end. They just wanted to look good. And so we have short memories. We'll probably forget it in about two years and be licking doorknobs again in a couple in, in, you know, 2024. Um, but, but it's, it's just disgusting, but it's been honestly the best year to be a libertarian because you can just sit there and just point every stupid decision and not say, ha ha, I told you so just go, did this work? Did, did, did schools shutting down really stop COVID? Did the teachers' unions saying they, okay, we'll go back when there's a vaccine. Oh, there's a vaccine. Well, we'll go back when everyone is vaccinated. Oh, everyone's vaccinated. Okay, we'll go back when 
can come up with another excuse. It's been so beautiful being a libertarian, just to be able to point those things and hear, getting people interested in liberty going, my school system sucks. Yes, it does. They all do. Please come look more into school choice. I don't even care if you go to another public school, private school, whatever it is. The minute you put choice into the into the into that game, everything's going to get better. Everything, and it always has. Uh, well, maybe it's a couple of things, but ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time, when there's choice, it's going to make the market better. Amen. It's hard for me to even debate or even add on to any of that, Brian. That's that's a very complete statement. Um, (laughs) The problem with the rule of law isn't that there. I think a lot of times, like we we libertarians can sound like there's no such thing as a good or a bad idea. It's all a matter of opinion. Now, sometimes there's like a a definitively bad idea, right? But the thing is, is when you are accountable and you are responsible and you are the one who who reaps the consequences and nobody else is on the hook for it, you are much more incentivized to make a good decision for yourself than somebody else making that good decision for you. It is, it is pretty mind blowing how bad the government bungled this. Cause what they did is they went from zero you there cease and desist testing cease and desist working on the vaccine. Nobody's allowed to study it. Don't worry about it. We've got all got under control. It's a hoax. It's all fake. Don't worry it's about it. It's to go ahead and tell people not to intermingle outside in Chinatown in February 2020. Right, yeah. It's apparently <laughs> racist to say that. Yeah, like, so they, they went from nothing, like, don't do anything and actively trying to stop you to actively trying to force you. Whereas in reality, letting people deal with the consequences of their own decisions would have been great. Now, a pandemic is probably unique in the sense that other people can suffer from the, from your bad interactions right like your bad judgment and i do think there's a libertarian argument to be made for saying like hey listen i did my best to keep myself safe i patronage this business that said i would stay safe you broke the protocols of that business because they wanted to make sure i was safe when i was there and you got me sick you are a bad person you are responsible for my illness death whatever may may come from there right like i think there is a libertarian argument to be made there but you are right, Brian. I think it's funny because going into it, people got the sense it was going to be a bad year to be a, be a libertarian because people were thinking, oh, no, like this is why governments exist because they're going to do great during this crisis. They're going to force us to do all these great things, these wonderful things. They did every authoritarian thing to dismiss it as a hoax. And then they did every authoritarian thing to make it sound like the end of the world, whereas the people just dealt with it how they should have. I mean, look at these quarantines. They never made any sense. It was either you're not allowed to quarantine which we're kind of back full circle around yeah. to everybody has to quarantine, even the healthy people who can't get effect- infected. And I think everybody knows like just common sense. I don't think it's even controversial. If you say like the best, the best action we could have taken would have been, Hey, people with compromised immune systems, let's, let's keep you out of home. Let's develop some, some systems to bring you food, to bring you like clean things. Like I understand some changes need to happen. A lot of libertarians like to pretend that, that, nothing needed to change. No, there were some changes that needed to happen, some adjustments both to the market and to just human interactions that needed to change, you know, and say like, hey, there's some increased safety precautions that we need to take. But the government did everything wrong at every point. At this point, it's empirical. I think you just measure it and say, look at, here's government involvement and here's our stats, you know, and like, did that work well? Was it worth, I mean, gosh, was it worth all this inflation? 
Was it worth getting all those people killed? Was it worth it? Andrew Cuomo for the nursing homes? Was it worth it? Was it worth it? What happened to your restaurants, you small business owners that are now saddled with debt for the rest of your, I mean, probably. If you're even open anymore. If you're even, if you don't have a business to go back to. If you took the government on their offer to say, hey, don't worry, you can take out a loan for the entire time you're forced to be closed. Yeah, that's a real great, yeah. Thank you. Now we own you forever. Yeah. (laughs) That's all I got to say. I, I had a friend of mine whose wife passed not from COVID, but during the middle of the pandemic. He was not allowed to be with her at the hospital. She did get to come home. She did pass at home. But imagine if she had passed in the hospital where they had a COVID testing center right there at the hospital where they were doing rapid tests. He could he couldn't even talk to her because she was incoherent and she was uh, isolated from others because of, you know, she didn't have COVID, but all those families that lost loved ones, not only just to COVID, but just in general, that couldn't be there with their families at the last minute when they, when they passed, they passed away alone in a hospital or alone in a nursing home. That's the real tragedy to me. And yeah. I'm thankful that some of the nursing homes and some of the hospitals finally started getting some, some, some cojones and telling government to go F themselves because I mean, they were telling people at funerals, including the first one that we were, we were, the, we were the, my friend's funeral was the first one that they allowed uh, where people could attend. They still socially distanced, but they weren't going to allow each other to comfort each other during the service. And I'm thankful that that funeral home basically said, F off, they're going to take the risk and we're going to let them. That's the, that's the stupid guidance they got from the government was nobody was to comfort anybody, nobody's to get within six feet, blah, blah, blah. That's and that's the kind of stuff we'd left with. And there's people still defending it. And there's people still saying, oh, we need to do more. We should have done more. If you lost a loved one during this and you weren't there to either be with them or comfort someone that you love. Guess who you get to blame? It isn't you. It wasn't your fault. It was the stupid government wandering in and saying, we know what's best for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I. A friend of mine passed during the pandemic and I attended his funeral via live stream and to see his mother standing there and nobody was allowed within six feet of her to hug her. She lost her, you know, mid thirties son Mm -hmm. unexpectedly. Yeah. Nobody could hug her. And I was enraged. Like, Mm -hmm. It was it was maddening, and I just yeah. And I how demasked did government get during this time too? How they weren't following their own protocols? Oh yeah, how many politicians got caught like just inviting their families over for Thanksgiving while telling you you can't have Thanksgiving with yours or getting well, hair, their hairstyle? Oh my god, all of them. It's like <laughs> and like and yeah. here's the, here's the reason it's so good to be a libertarian because I think what that did, Brian, mm-hmm. is it took it took people from the idea of what they want government to be. What they thought it could have done, because I think even if you were like, if like theoretically, they could have done all the right things, right? But it made it took them from a place to say, "This is what my think I think government should and would do," to this what is what government is and what it does do, and that's like the huge libertarian shift, right? Because I think you can have an idea, and I think many of us, most of I know I did, had an idea like an idea when we were children that that government was going to be this great thing. We just need to fix it and get it right. And it's like, this is, this is not the tool that you think it is, you know? Anyhow. Uh, Lou, 
What are your, what's it? Give us a piece of your mind. Ooh, okay. So I'm, I, I'm one of those lefties that like, and you hear this a lot. If you go far enough left, you get your guns back. Right. <laughs> and nice. so like, like I'm not, I'm not a Marxist necessarily in the fiscal sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but when it comes to my guns, do not disarm the proletariat. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> so. This case, I what was it today? Actually, so the Democrats and and I, I hate even referring to Democrats as leftists because they're not right. I, I think we know that. Status. <laughs> Um, you know, they're all big about their red flag laws and they're, you know, see something, say something to a school counselor and they'll come in and take your guns and, you know, for the safety of everybody around. And today, God bless the Supreme Court 9 and 0 unanimous decision. We can't come take people's guns without a warrant and probable cause. I loved it. It was beautiful, right? So I think that this is really good, especially, and it, it may be, and I'm looking at the the Democrat or the more left-leaning justices, right? They're probably looking at a lot of the pressure coming down the pipe in regards to a lot of these no-knock raids and the Breonna Taylor cases and, and things like that, right? Where people getting their doors kicked in, thinking they're defending their home, and then get killed by the police, right? For no good reason. (laughs) And I think that's probably where a lot of that pressure came from on the left. But constitutionally speaking, I'm kind of like, about the Constitution, right? Like, there's parts of it I could check. Like, I don't care. Um, But as a human right, a natural right, we all have the right to defend ourselves. And any authority cannot take that away from me unless like, and I hate even saying unless because I still want to be like, no. (laughs) Um, But I like the fact that they stepped up and said, you have to have a truly legitimate cause, probable cause and a warrant before you can take somebody's self-defense. And um, I have to applaud the Supreme Court on this. And I really, I'm curious to see, because this is pretty fresh. I'm curious to see the reaction from the left. Like, I I know obviously the right is going to cheer, but the left is very split on this. Um, There is, you know, supporting the red flag laws and this, that, and the other, but that feeds the no-knock raids and gets people killed. So maybe we're going to start pushing my fellow lefties far enough left. We'll get our freaking guns back. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, that's what's on my mind. I think that was pretty short and sweet. (laughs) COVID was the best year for anti-gun control in my honest opinion, especially, especially for my friends in Southern California who all of a sudden were very interested in becoming armed. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because all of a sudden you're cheering zombie apocalypse and people are going, I don't want to be eaten. <laughs> right. So, uh, it, it was brilliant to see people that I know um, that, that were, were probably good, you know, 
gun gun control advocates suddenly get very interested and then very very involved in the process to legally procure a firearm in California or other places. Um, and for the reasons that they did, and they didn't do it just because, oh, I'm worried about telling the apocalypse. You know, some people were legitimate security concerns. And obviously you find that out. They Once they go through the process, they go, I thought it was supposed to be like easier to, to get a gun than it is to vote. No, no, no. You have to go back on checks and everything else. And that's every time you buy a gun, you got to go to a certain place and take them through the whole process. And they suddenly go, a lot of work. Yeah. Right. And what's so funny is for years, and then you see the memes on social media about like how easy it is to get a gun. Mm-hmm. Have you tried? Yeah. Like there wasn't there. Um, I think it was a Vice article where one of their like journalists was like, "I'm going to show you how easy it is to get a gun," and the process yeah. was so intense and complicated and he had these waiting processes and background checks and all that and he ended up getting denied yes. which was hysterical because yes. proved he was <laughs> to get a gun oh you can get him from the streets okay uh, sure yeah. you know the right people right. I guess but you're not going to walk up to somebody on the street and be like hey you got a gun yeah. Like, who, who know is walking around like a trench coat full of guns? Like, <laughs> well, wait a minute. I saw it once on a Magnum PI episode that the guy had a bunch of guns. That's reality, right? That's what happens in Hawaii. They don't have a bunch it's of guns. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gun is a guns are just one example. I think for me, one of the greatest parts of this last year, and there was a lot of terrible parts, at least as far as watching the government. But the thing is, I already thought the government sucked before this. So the government sucking on COVID was nothing new. I think for me, one of the eye-opening things was I thought the left was further left than it was until this last year. And then I was like, these people are quite reachable. Like this is very, look at how many of them were like, I'm not doing Biden. I'm not doing it. I'm not playing it. I'm not going to no. Like this is not no more blue, no matter who. Sorry, go ahead, Lou. This is your peace of mind after all. Oh, no, like, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. You're right. It really is your fault. But I, like, there's this weird division. Like, we saw it with the Republican Party, right? There's the Trumpists and there's Republicans. Yeah. Right? We're seeing that same thing on the left. Like, I am a leftist. I am a left anarchist. Mm-hmm. Biden is basically a Republican. Yeah, no, he's he's he he is yeah, he's he's the he's the down south, he's Southern Democrat. All right, Southern Democrat the blue dog Democrat. In many of the ways Republic like Trump was a Democrat, Biden's a Republican. Like I I believe that this is a Tom Woods quote, but no matter who you elect, you get John McCain. And it's just like once again, we got John (laughs) McCain. How did this happen? Why does this keep happening? Like the lakes mean nothing anymore as far as the the politicians in office on the federal level. Like it means nothing but i think the the most important part this last year was who it mattered nothing to because i think for some people that blue no matter who still has still matters right like there's still friends and family that some of us have that's like look i'm voting red and red till dead and you know blue no matter who and that's that's what it is but i saw people this last year that i just thought no way 
Um, I mean, if you would have told me, man, whatever you think of Black Lives Matter, like there has been no harsher critic of Joe Biden than Black Lives Matter. Just look at them on social media. And they are they, the true leftist. They they hate him more than Fox News has dunked on him <laughs> more than like, I mean, CNN is even losing viewership because of how they're dunking on Joe Biden, which I want to say kind of props to them as well, that they're willing to kind of take some lumps by being like, I don't like him by saying right. like, Hey, listen, he's telling as many lies as Donald Trump. You might not want to hear that, but that's what's happening. So time to open your eyes, but black lives matter is harder than any of them. I mean, you can name like one American news network isn't as harsh on Joe Biden as freaking black lives matter is on Joe Biden. So like, and it's not just black lives matter. Like, like we mentioned with the guns and you looked at um, even like Chaz a little bit. And, and of course there were some property issues, you know, with Chaz that we can, we can talk about as well. But you looked at like what these like kind of lefty communist folks. And then they were like, no, we hate the government. We hate police overlords. Like we, and you're just like, Oh right. wow. Democrats like, are not leftists. Like yeah. as a leftist, I gotta tell you, Democrats are not leftists. <laughs> it, it's it's just statism, one way or another. Big government worship, and that every, they can solve everything. And the reality is that the individuals, it, it's your baby, it's you, it's your baby, it's your family. You know, Hody, when you were talking about the things people did for COVID, what did we do? We went to the people that get most affected by COVID very early. It didn't even take the government telling us. You're not going grocery shopping anymore. We will get everything you need and we will bring it to you and we will bring it to you in a manner that's safe. And we please stay home, take care of yourself. Government right. didn't do that. People did that. Right. Our community stepped up around here. It was really impressive. And, and just imagine what they could do if they could just get out of the way and not have government sitting there going, you can't run a food bank because you didn't get properly licensed by Fred over here. Fred will be glad to come by and put you put your application through for licensing sometime in May of 2017 or 27. Yeah. Right. Exactly. To look at, at your place. Like, and it's the same, you know, and I hear a lot of times from my fellow lefties who are like, oh, well, you know, if churches really wanted to do good, they'd open their doors to the homeless. And I'm like, and they would if the government would let them. Or yeah. it would cost money for the like it's not a reality because of the government could bernie want loan out one of his houses maybe <laughs> to a family that's homeless <laughs> sorry that's why i just i just love it i i in the end all these people in government are all buddy buddy they all know that they're playing the media, everybody else, to make them look good, to keep viewership. One of the most heartbreaking things of this entire thing, and yes, it's kind of heartbreaking, okay. It's really not, but, you know, for me, it just was bothersome. Seeing people get sucked into MSNBC, Fox, and CNN, and the anger and the outrage, and, and just like um, Chris Spangle has said, turn that crap off. Because yeah. all they want you to do is keep watching and keep their advertisers happy. The best part that's come out post-pandemic is watching MSNBC and CNN's ratings tank. Fox is going along with them. I would love to see the end of 24-hour news. I don't want to ban it. I just want to make it so in everyone to find out how inept it is that no one wants to watch it anymore. 
And, and I'm hopefully- As a journalist, I agree. 24 hour news is the worst thing to happen to the media. Social media, social media too. So mm. it's, it's very insular. Like it, it's, it's very tribal. They want to boil everything they want to boil everything down to one person or one event, right? Like this is, you know who the right is? The right is Donald Trump. The right is, you know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, like this is who the right is. If you're right leaning, this is what you advocate. This is who you support. This is what it is. And if it's the left, it's, you know, these people, you know, breaking down buildings this summer and, and busting up comic book shop. And you support that, you know, if you support Black Lives Matter. And it's it's not it's not helpful. Like there's said, no right nuance. There's no there's no room for opinion. Get right. in line or you're not one of us. Right. And you'll see, I mean, and you'll see these outlets go to great lengths to defend the indefensible. I mean, it's, I am so sick of hearing about Trump. Like, yeah, he lied, but what about these lies? Or yeah, like maybe there's like, maybe he shouldn't have been on his neck, but like, what about this guy's like comic book shop? And you're just like, man, like at some point, can we do the right thing? Like, regardless of what the other side is doing, like. (laughs) I see an ungraphic. Fiery but peaceful protest in Kenosha. Yeah, that that will live down in history because it's like we have this agenda, and I will not hear anything yeah. of anything else. We had it printed out, and we're too lazy to even get somebody to like change the graphic. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's mostly peaceful. This building burning behind me. Don't even worry. They just lost their entire right. Is their insurance is going to cover because it's a riot? You know. Uh-huh. Well, that's Which I opening bars. Of it was a major media okay. outlet, and they actually were like, um, "What they said, Antifa disguised as as GOP supporters, yeah, infiltrate the White House the next day, and it like got published. Like it actually like made it to a major publication. That's the biggest crock of shit. Right. <laughs> like, I, I can't. Anti- if they were Antifa, they would have been wearing masks. <laughs> well, they're wearing face paint, some of them. Yeah. Oh, well, and also, the ever popular Antifa isn't fascist. It's in the name. I'm going, okay, when you're beating somebody up because they they, they didn't want to follow your, your, your little group blocking the road, I got to go over there. No, you're not going here. It's kind of a mob. <laughs> I think Mob mentality and that in those instances, I agree with you. As like the foundational ideas of Antifa, no, we're very anti-fascist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but, but there have certainly been moments in the heat of the moment where they have acted fascistly. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and I, mean, I think the thing is everybody feels everybody, everybody feels cowed because of the media to say uh, either defend it all or condemn it all. And like you right. said, it's just it's just I without nuance. nuance. Like it's just completely like like how many Antifa folks feel the need to defend like what what like I mean there was that whole thing about uh deregulated currency. I I mean I know Brexit, but like you know, and they were just like no Currency needs to be nationalized. And Antifa had a big like rally about that. And I'm like, oh, you guys, that is that is like fascism. That's that's if you if you did like 12 bullet points on fascism, that's one of them. But like and the thing is, is like what they'll do is they'll cow other anti-fascists into defending that position as opposed to just being like, no, I'm going to condemn all of fascism 
you right. guys go to hell. Like it, it's it's something right. that we just want, coin. Right. <laughs> this is our camp and this is your camp. And like the more we live on these islands, these insular, you know, all our side is always right, their side is always wrong, the less we're gonna get out of there. And I, I think, I mean, it's one of the reasons I even have a show like this where I take left and right libertarians because I just think it's important to get it all because all the perspectives come together and it, it forms into one beautiful libertarian philosophy. And you can't, you can't have it without one side or the other, you know, like right. it's just, it, it, we live together and die together. And, and if we don't, if we choose to say like, oh, those left libertarians are the problem or those right libertarians are the problem, no libertarianism will succeed. It's just, it, it's, you, it, it really is a unite or die thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, guys, thanks so much for tuning in this week. Brian, Lou, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, I'm going to see you all in a couple of days. We're going to do this whole thing over again. Um, I appreciate you listener for tuning in. If you are tuned in, please share, please click. All you got to do is click. Here's the thing. We got ads on the show now. I'm aware you might hate it, but I love it because we get money every time somebody clicks on it. And that means I can get a website going, which we're going to have very soon for this podcast. Maybe we'll get a Patreon going. We'll see. Uh, we're in this for the big bucks. I'm looking to get Brian and Lou in on a more permanent basis. And then we can, we can all share the wealth. So, you know, if you guys just download the show, share the show, it's as simple as that. It makes me money. And that means that I get to do more of this and less of all that other stuff. Uh, Love you guys. Appreciate y'all for tuning in. Thanks so much. You have a great day. I love you. And I'll talk to you later.